Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. This is Paul Axton, and I want to continue my series dealing with philosophical figures. I'm kind of holding out here. I've been waiting to do Jacques Derrida because I think he is quite significant for the theological enterprise, but just for a general understanding of language. Uh, As many theologians have noted, it's really Derrida then that can give us an understanding or a reading of someone like Karl Barth and understand then what Barth is doing. Not that we require a supplement, but that the explanation is helpful. Uh, McKenna has written a book on violence and difference, showing how Derrida fits in with René Girard. There are a variety of, of ways in which Derrida's theory of language, I think, fits very much into a theological understanding. Certainly Derrida and Jacques Lacan make a, a very similar case, and of course they're, they knew of one another. Uh, Derrida, like many thought of Lacan as kind of an odd figure and didn't want to have much to do with him. But Lacan very much appreciated Derrida's philosophical project of deconstruction. And, of course, that the idea that self-consciousness is divided, well, that very much fit into Lacanian theory. What we have in, in Derrida, the notion that there is an inherent violence in the very use of our use of language and the idea of difference and arriving at identity, you know, presence in and through language. There is an inherent violence that's perpetrated then in a particular understanding of what, you know, Kant is going to call ontotheology, the notion that you can in some way come to full presence or grasp the object in its completeness through language. The point that Derrida, I think, that, that is making, that it's there in Lacan, it's there in McKenna's portrayal, is that identity through difference is inherently violent. And yet we are conceived in a system of this difference, that in, in a sense that this violence by which we're surrounded is inescapable. Now, Derrida didn't put it exactly that way. In other words, he's talking about justice and that justice is in some way available, but it's not available then in and through the law. And of course, a lot of this, I think, coincides with exactly what Paul is describing. And the language here, you know, of Aufhebung, the the notion of uh, a kind of suspension of the law, uh, the Hegelian notion that he picks up of the same language of Aufhebung, you know, through Luther, Luther reading of Paul, this all comes down to us in, a, in an understanding of what's occurring in language conceived of as law. And so Derrida's entire project was aimed at justice that is not itself already rendered. It's unjust. The world is unjust due to its working through the dynamic of difference. And so Derrida hit upon an understanding uh, which me, he and many others noted that is, I think, parallel to a biblical understanding. This is certainly Caputo's reading of, of Derrida. I'm hesitant to refer to people like Caputo because I always felt that Derrida himself was suspicious that Caputo 
and especially those in, in uh, the United States who first imported postmodern thought or Derrida's thought into the United States in their kind of negative theology or in their atheism. I think he was always suspicious that they, they didn't understand what he was doing. And that is that they were doing with absence or nothingness a kind of atheism, something that I don't think Derrida himself was doing. The hard atheists were reifying nothing in the same way that a positive theology would imagine that we could reify the full presence of God. And I think Derrida was a much more subtle thinker than that. He may have identified himself primarily as an atheist, but, but I don't think that quite gets what his theology or his theory is doing. The idea that with Derrida, certainly he's not a Christian, but Derrida concluded that we must be in relentless pursuit of justice. And of course, he pictured this as a kind of impossibility, but what he might have meant by impossibility, maybe it's sort of what we mean by parousia, that it's coming, it's, it's on its way, that we can conceive of it. We lost Derrida in 2004, and I, I remember the, the, when he died. I, I think he was a very significant thinker, but of course he's one of those thinkers that, you know, his reception or lack of reception at places like Oxford University, where they kind of derided his whole form of thought. There, there is, a, I think, a huge misunderstanding surrounding Derrida that they, he's often pictured with what I would call the flaky postmodernists that uh, kind of game playing. I don't think that's really uh, what he was about. Derrida himself expressed regret concerning the, the fate of the word deconstruction, that as with many thinkers, that people have taken his thought in philosophy and literary criticism and theory and art, architectural theory, political theory, and they've done things with his thought. I had a friend that was the head of a department of Oxford, and he describes Derrida coming to Oxford, you know, and the, the, the kind of media attention that he received and the kind of fame that, you know, he's, he is a little bit like or was the rock star philosopher on the order of somebody today like Slavoj Žižek with hundreds of people filling auditoriums to hear him speak and you know, with film and television programs devoted to him. But his critique, deconstruction, is really, I think, a, a biblical project in its undoing of the notion, its attack. Derrida is better than Heidegger. He's better than Hegel, though he himself is going to say he never did anything but reread Hegel, that it is the Hegelian project. But it's not the Hegelian project that gives itself over to the notion of spirit. But I, I think that in this sense, the, the atheism, if, if that's the right word that we would attach to Derrida, is actually an improvement on someone like Heidegger. I'm afraid that what we have in, in Heidegger is kind of a devolving into imagining that we can obtain being, even though Heidegger is really talking about the suspension of that. Even more than the reconception of difference and his notion of deconstruction, uh, I think behind all of that there is the understanding of an anatomy, of, an, of violence. 
I think if we take Derrida and we apply him then to psychoanalytic understanding, that is that this all applies to an immediate understanding of the way in which we would grasp or what we would do in a failed understanding of language, in a Girardian sense. Though Girard and Derrida are very different kinds of, you know, Girard is very accessible, very easy to understand. I think that we can take Girardian theory and understand, well, actually, it is the same project. It, it is a more difficult project to understand because of the way in which uh, Derrida is dealing with text. The, the key thing, you know, Derrida, maybe in the very beginning of his career, he asks the question about the origin of things, the genesis of things, that things are already structured in their very genesis. And this is where he hits upon the notion of, of difference or difference with, with an A. And that is that every structural or synchronic phenomenon has a history that is universal. And in this, I think it is a, a biblical insight, not an insight into reality, not an insight into the way that creation is, but an insight into the structuring of the origins of human thought. There is this idea of uh, an originary complexity, an original positing. Derrida will refer to it as iterability, that is, you can write it, inscription, textuality. If we think in terms of Plato, you know, he, he works with Plato's notion of the pharmacon. What comes first, speech or writing? And of course, there is this notion that speech in some way should be privileged over writing, that writing is in some form a degraded kind of speech. If we think here of Derrida's reading of Freud, this is really the undoing, you know, that what we have in speech is a signed system that is not superior, uh, or speech is not superior to the signed system, but writing is itself the inner core, then this chain of signifiers is always what's taking place in speech. And of course, what we imagine uh, is occurring in speech is uh, a kind of presence and our immediate spirit. And this is really the, the project, I think, that is being undone. Deconstruction is a reverse reading of Hegel. I think it is the Freudian reading of Hegel. It is the undoing of the, the dialectic. Difference, then, is the origin of things. And if you think here in the, the Derrida will give us a reading of Genesis 3, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Of, of course, he's doing something very different here than Hegel, who imagines, oh, here's the origin of human thought. And what Derrida is going to say, no, this isn't the origin of human thought. This is the imagined origin. This is a, a kind of origin of a realm apart. And so he's going to deconstruct this, and it's e easy to see the, the problem with identity through difference, that evil is over and against the good, the good is over and against the evil. But the point is that these two modes of what should be absolute differences inhere in one another. That is, the one thing requires the other thing. Unfortunately, what you get in the imagined opposed pairs that, of course, are part of the uh, one mode of identity is that good and evil would reduce to sameness. That is, that there's no differentiation. 
So here is the contradiction, here is the deconstruction, that identity through difference would reduce to sameness. But this, this is not a harmless thing. This is a violent sameness. Think of obliteration. Think of a system of sacrifice that fails, and there is complete chaos. And so I think we always need to, to put Derrida with a kind of Girardian understanding that we're describing the construct of human sacrifice, of violence, and the anatomy of that construct. And so the entire history of the concept of structure, we're never really dealing with a first-order reality that the signifying chain, we imagine that there's a center or a presence or a transcendental signified or the sign will bring us that which it signifies and of course the point is it never delivers but the history of metaphysics like the history of the west is then this history in which there is the imagination that we can arrive at being you know big big being or we can arrive at the word this is my reading of anselm i think that anselm in fact is in this sense really way ahead of his time not in a good sense, but in the sense that what he's imagining is that we can arrive at the Word of God, capital W, in and through the Word of Man. This is the problem, that the notion that essence, existence, substance, subject, you know, that we can arrive at these in and through the Word, in and through that this is the nature of truth that we have a first-order attempt to, or, or we can grasp God in that sense, that God presents himself in this way. This is idolatry. And, and so we need to deconstruct this idol. Once you understand this, that Derrida's project, I think it just fits into so many others. If you think of the Lacanian project, or even going back that Lacan and Zizek's reading of Paul, what? Derrida brings to this is that in the Pauline notion or in the Cartesian notion, I think, therefore I am. Of course, what Lacan and Zizek are going to say about that, what Paul is saying about that, is that there is an inherent self-deception. Though we might put it this way, that I'm a lie that I tell myself. And the telling, the lying, the structure here, the linguistic element to it, that we imagine we can get a handle on ourselves, that literally that I think presents us with our own self-presence, our own essence. This is a psychoanalysis, it's a psychoanalytic truth, it's a philosophical truth. I think this is the nihilism that is inherent to so much philosophical thought. That is that in my reading you can just go back in the history of philosophy I'm not sure that there was ever a departure from what Derrida is describing here. Philosophical texts need deconstructing in the same way that a human understanding needs deconstructing, that the very nature of desire presents itself in this fallen pursuit of knowledge, the, the pursuit of essence, the pursuit of being in and through a particular understanding of the way knowledge and language works. Derrida really gives us a, a reading of Heidegger 
that Heidegger imagines that we can get close to being by achieving proximity to self. Well, that's the Anselmian project, you know, that in this sense Anselm was the first rational mystic, as Schufrader puts it, and Heidegger is the last rational mystic. We can look at the history of Western thought then as beginning, I think, in someone like Anselm of Canterbury, although there is a huge gap in understanding Anselm uh, that's taken up again in someone like René Descartes. The tragic ending of that story is, is appropriately with the Nazi, anti-Semitic, despicable Heidegger. So desire is the force Maybe if we think of it in a Pauline sense, that sin takes control, taking the opportunity through the commandment. That is, think here, uh, well, what is the commandment? What it is the law? Well, it's ontotheology. It's the word as an essence in itself, that we imagine that there's life in the law. We imagine that there's an immediate presence in language. Paul says, this produced in me coveting of every kind. And so the desire for life, of course, indicates its absence, that if you think back into Genesis, that Eve goes panting after the tree. Of course, when she turned away from the tree of life, she's panting after the life in and through the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That is, she would gain life in and through language in and through this new law. She would attempt to establish being, God-likeness, through knowing good and evil. And I think this describes Paul's frustrated pursuit in which two principles or laws are waging war within him. You know, the law of the mind, the law of the flesh are pitted over and against one another. The voice of God or the word of God is very different from this, you know, that, that if we imagine the Word of God operating on the order that Paul depicts law as operating, we've just reduced the Bible, and of course that's what happens in fundamentalism or in notions of biblical inerrancy, that we just imagine that there that we have a first order access, we obtain the truth, we can hold the truth like Donald Trump would you know, hold it up in front of the, the church there. As Aristotle put it, spoken words are the symbols of mental experience, and written words are the symbols of spoken words. That is, there's this picture, this is Derrida in, on grammatology, that in some way we have a first-order access in and through speech. Uh, we don't recognize the gap between a speaker and his words. This gap, of course, that produces what we might call fallen desire, that there is the attempt to close this gap, that we would obtain presence in and through the, the word. And so there's a dualism arising, not an actual dualism, but an imagined dualism, the belief in a dualism between the sign and the signified, and the, the attempt, the desire, is always to obtain, to close the gap to arrive at self-presence, to meld with the one, to obtain the object. And so Derrida refers to this presence-absence as showing itself in the trace. It's not its ambiguity, but it's its play. 
I'm quoting Derrida here, the word ambiguity requires the logic of presence, even when it begins just to disobey that logic. That is that uh, he's saying that we need to understand the inherent problem in the letter. This is Paul, you know, the letter kills, the spirit gives life. What we would imagine is, no, the letter delivers the spirit. Or we can imagine the, the gap between the body and the soul, or any dualism. All theories of the immortality of the soul over the spirit, every form of monism, spiritualist or material, they contain then this, this metaphysics, this dualism, in which there is a continual striving toward a reduction of the trace. And so the subordination of the trace, the subordination of the trace of writing to the full presence, summed up in the logos, to pass beyond writing to the full presence of speech, to arrive at plenitude. This is ontotheology. This can be demonstrated in so many forms of philosophical understanding. This just seems to be the, the drive behind modern philosophy, but I, I would say even pre-modern. I, I think this just goes back to Plato. At least this is my reading of Plato, and I know this is contested. There is a, a, a tendency to imagine that there is an alternative to this principle that Derrida is laying out. I think people misunderstood Derrida himself in this. Uh, people would place his critique into modernism. But he, he asked at one conference, well, why do you think that is? Why? You know, this isn't a critique simply of the modern. This is a critique of the very history uh, of human thought. That is, I don't think Derrida saw this as limited to a particular period. And in this sense, I think that the uh, radical orthodox uh, people, John Milbank, Connor Cunningham, writes a history of the kind of critique of modernity through post-modernity, but I think we can just extend that critique on back. I think that it's inclusive of what's happening in the philosophical project from its beginning. That is, that metaphysics is inclusive of the history of philosophy. It's inclusive of what Derrida calls the reduction of the trace to, in some way, pass beyond writing. And so it is an attempt to arrive at the fullness of meaning, the parousia of life without difference, as he puts it. The identity through difference, the trace of language is taken up as the means and end to a full presence. Think again of Genesis, eat and know. This constitutes the full presence to the self, like God. The self is necessarily alienated from the other of God. That is, the whole project is set up. The whole epistemology is set up as an, an ontology of alienation, defining the self, arriving in a self through the opposition, through the differences that are posed there. And so in the deception, the law, language, we might say, the symbolic order, the knowledge of good and evil, is a means of establishing the self. It's an and how you would do this, there's no singular way of, of doing this. Maybe you picture it as arriving and grasping God. Maybe you picture it in an atheistic sense as melding with the one. In other words, there's no end to the ways that you might establish the self or, or arrive. It can be Eastern, it can be Western, but it's the same desire. And it is this 
the self has become the site of this kind of destructive desire in Paul's picture. Deception produces a kind of inverted economy of exchange. The promised life, we are continually in pursuit of life, is death. It is absence, in the words of Derrida. And of course, this is the the serpent's lie in the garden, that the special knowledge enacted, the dynamic he puts into play, in some way will bring us to God-likeness. And we might put it in psychoanalytic terms, the attempt of the I to possess itself, to possess the commandment, turn back on the subject. And Paul says, and sin possessed me. That is, that members of my body, he pictures this almost like a, I think it's too strong to call it a demon possession, but here certainly is the notion of the satanic in a Girardian sense, that this thing has a, has a grip on us, it's possessed us. It is what constitutes the agonistic eye. And so the imagery is not of possessing, though to embody or possess the law describes the desire. But of course the imagery is of being possessed by a force that kills, in Paul's description, it kills and deceives. And Paul describes the process of being reduced to a cadaver as this alien force, the agonistic struggle, the identity through difference came upon me and reduced me to a site of production for desire and death. The law of sin, Paul says, has colonized my members in 723, my translation, and I as at war with himself in a losing battle. Sin came alive as an animate force displacing the eye, and I died. That is, there's a dead eye there that Paul's describing what death looks like. And when we say that Adam, the day that you eat of it, you will die, Paul's saying, oh yeah, he did. He did die. And this is what death looks like. And we are uh, then cadavers. We are emptied out by this uh, desire. This is, of course, what Paul, and here we pass a little bit beyond Derrida, but it's the same thing in the, you know, the male, female, Jew, Greek, slave, master, citizen, alien, circumcised, uncircumcised, near, far, that Paul poses the series of dualisms that he's going to refer to as a dividing wall of hostility. I think this is the, the very identity through difference that Derrida is locating for us. It's there in the Jewish temple. Identity is by means of a dualistic and violent hostility toward the other. The driving force of this hostility, that is the promise of the lie. That is, that we've all been gripped by this deception. Zizek will call it the primordial lie. It is the very notion of the subject in Lacanian psychoanalysis. There is no subject apart from this lie. And the idea is that it is continually dealing in death, but of course imagining that it's excluding death, that it's escaping death, and in that act it embraces it. And so this promised presence, obtaining being like God, might go under the name of God, but of course it's the name of death. It is death. Unfortunately, if we don't deconstruct the ontotheology 
if we don't deconstruct the knowledge of good and evil, if we don't deconstruct modernity, what we call God is Satan. What we call God is death. And so life without different, uh, you know, that's the pursuit. Well, that is another name for death. And this is what we imagine that God does for us, that he holds life in check for us, that we would obtain the master signifier. And this is, I'm quoting Derrida. That's why if this movement begins its error in the form of Platonism, it ends in infinitist metaphysics. Only infinite being can reduce the difference in presence. In that sense, the name of God, at least as it is pronounced within classical rationalism, is the name of indifference itself. So, identity through difference would arrive at sameness, and this sameness is pictured as divine. The devil, I'm afraid, is made the divine. That it's total violence, of course, it's total violence unleashed. Here is the Holocaust. Here is you know, mutually assured destruction in the genealogy of this mutually assured destruction. Derrida says, we must not therefore speak of a theological prejudice functioning sporadically when it is a question of the plenitude of the logos. The logos as the sublimation of the trace is theological. That is that this is the whole project in Derrida's definition of the theological. It really, uh, you know, this is, I think, uh, in Graffia's insight, Brian in Graffia, that Derrida's definition of the theological amounts to the opposite of biblical theology. And so if we read Derrida as a biblical theologian, we can separate ourselves from this uh, satanic kind of theology. That is, he's identified a fallen theology and in his later writings. does not exclude uh, what, in fact, is biblical theology. That is, I think he comes to see this himself, that as one of the, his primary dialogue partners, many of his students are Christian. They're going to point out to him that what he's doing is a, a Christian project. What is noted is that God is needed in the metaphysical system or exterior to the system, only a positive infinity can lift the trace, sublimate it. This is Derrida's notion. We can state this in Zizekian terms. We need to get rid of the big other. We need to get rid of this notion of the metaphysical God, the ontotheological God, of this positive infinity that it can some way relieve us of the agonistic struggle of identity through, through difference. In Derrida's picture, the infinity must exist as promise, and theology or religion per se is one form of the promise that Derrida is going to say is theological. But the biblical understanding is over and against this theological understanding. The hope of Christ displaces I as the goal. You know, this is the, the whole point of Paul's picture that where chapter 7 of Romans is focused on the isolated individual before the law with its compulsion to repeat. Derrida gives us a deep reading of, of Freud and 
also the compulsion to repeat. He does a, a marvelous reading of Freud's day of babysitting his grandchild when he first arrives at the tripartite self. He's following the same pattern that Lacan is going to follow. They're reading that story as key, of course, in Freud's depiction of the superego of the death drive. That's where Freud comes up with his three-part self in, in which the superego is over and against the ego. That is there in Romans chapter 7. And this is undone in chapter 8. Paul speaks of a corporate identity in the Holy Spirit, those in Christ Jesus. And, and so I think we need to read this in a Bartian sense. I think in a real way, uh, Derrida is an insight into the Bartian project, that Derrida gives us a vocabulary or a means of, of understanding what it is that Bart means in chapter 5 of his dogmatics when he's talking about language. There is this system in which we need to avoid the ontotheology, and I think that's that Bart is not using that sort of language, but I, I think that's really what he's about in chapter 5 of the, the dogmatics. And so Paul's eye, you know, his ego, the dynamic of desire, the dynamic of death, is replaced by hope. And this hope is not seen. You know, that's the continual thing here. And Bart will notice this. Derrida notices it. Lacan notices it. That there is in the notion of presence the idea of the visual. Lacan, the image in the mirror. The idea of identifying presence in Freud. You know, the bodily image is there. That we imagine... Uh, the, the bodily image is the eye. This is the notion of the conflict between the two registers in Lacan. You have the symbolic register and you have what he calls the imaginary register or the visual register. The cure for this is that a hope is unseen and this then brings about in Paul a conformity to the image of the sun. The sun is not a master signifier. Jesus as the word is not, you know, the transcendental signified. That is ontotheology. But what we get then in Paul is a reconstitution of the subject through hope, through this life, where the work of the law is displaced by the law of the spirit of life. And this then frees us from slavery to fear. Uh, Lacan, you know, Zizek, they talk about the ego as just a, constituted in fear. The struggle is the, the constituting element. But now we have direct access to God. We can cry out, Abba, Father, reconstituting the subject, a child of God. And the body of sin, the body of death, is displaced in the resurrection life of the Spirit. Paul's eye becomes a life of hope. This is very different from, I think, the Anselmian notion uh, from the Cartesian, the Cogito. Paul says the eye has been crucified. The image in the mirror is no longer the thing. That we're, We have our sight set on that which is unseen to kind of confound the metaphor. That is that we, we see through our ears. It is an auditory presentation. This is not simply a theological apprehension of who God is, but I think this is a way of understanding that the, the way that language works in theology and the way that language works. Maybe this is a correct understanding of, 
Aquinas's notion of you know the analogy of being that it's always analogous. Bart is going to critique Analogiantis in, in the in the same way that we could critique the notion of an ontotheology. The the argument is that Bart is reading ontotheology into Aquinas, and I think that yeah, Aquinas is better than that. That that may be a misreading of, of what Aquinas is doing. The Bartian critique here certainly applies then to later readings in Duns Scotus and Rene Suarez. But the idea is that the work of the law, the being of the world leading to the being of God, the word of man giving us the word of God, is displaced by this life in the spirit which results in the reconstituted notion of the self. And so the dualism is displaced, the linguistic dualism of the lie in which God's presence is replaced with the pursuit of self-presence. That's the implication here of I have died with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ that lives within me. It's not that we've arrived at self-presence or even that we have the fulfillment of presence as we would have had it under sin. No, the idea is that system is undone. Self as, as a product of its own inner dialogue, this agonistic I, or the God of the gaps, which is always the human God. This linguistic dualism in which man wants his own voice to function in the manner of the divine voice. That is, that we would put revelation within ourselves we would render ourselves as an absolute knower and so the object and its pursuit are turned inward in an attempt to get at a missing presence of self this is my this is Schufrader's reading of Anselm that he imagines that we can close in on the word of God in a interior journey into the inward voice you know that we can capture that word the voice like that of a divine must arise from an essence prior to and separate from the language so that's always the thing here we're dealing in language but there's always the attempt to escape language to imagine we can pass beyond language you know in wittgenstein's point the idea that we'll use language as a ladder to heaven and once you climb up into heaven you can kick it away Language is just a means or a mode in the sinful notion that will bring us to self-presence. And of course, that is a picture of silence, of death. And so what I says to the self is, this is Lacan's reading of creation ex nihilo. Here is the human creation ex nihilo. The dialectic of self with self gives me to myself, but this product of the dialectic must be the origin you know, we imagine of a prior essence or the illusion. This is what deconstruction does for us. It, it undoes this, but I think this is what theology, Christianity, is supposed to do for us. So where Aristotle maintains the illusion of self-presence, he says spoken words are the symbols of mental experience and written words. Uh, the, the idea here is that language must be a sign an outside, of an outside arising from the signified I inside. So the linguistic dualism of the lie would render up an immediate intelligibility, an inner I, 
you know, we can say this EI as in EYE, a visual thing that foregoes all need of sensibility, that we just obtain the object of sight and knowledge then will be fully present to this inward I, E-Y-E of the self, and the new knowledge will make God obsolete and unnecessary. The self is the origin of self. This is Freud, this is Zizek, this is Paul, that we would be our own father. I is the father of self. We are. Uh, we conceive our own selves. That's really the project. I mean, we may not articulate it in that way, but the idea is that what is the origin? We are the origin. That we are the stuff. We are the essence. That this inward voice functions in an absolute matter, and it must be made purely inward in its essence and is thus not reducible to what lies outside. This is why I think Wittgenstein is a cure, another cure. I think Wittgenstein is the parallel to what Derrida is doing, in a very different mode, in a very different way. But this is at least my understanding of the significance of Ludwig Wittgenstein by putting language and humanity in, that, that there is no notion of a private language. And so soul, body, flesh, spirit, the dualisms, external, internal, image, reality, representation, presence, the, the infinite, you know, the dualisms uh, are just infinite, and they are always going to be attached to human knowledge that would support the notion of an inward capacity to obtain the divine. This is sin, as Derrida points out, Sin is not defined as the system itself, but as an inversion of the posed pairs. Sin has been defined often, I'm quoting Daryl, as the inversion of the natural relationship between the soul and, and the body through passion. And of course, this is just the opposite of Paul's notion of what soma, that it is the notion of the physical body the holistic body, the interconnection with, you know, the notion of embodiment, uh, a person embodied in a particular environment. The body is that which constitutes him a social being, a being who relates to and communicates within his environment. And so it's as an embodied entity that he can act upon and be acted upon by his environment. This is very Pauline, this is very Wittgensteinian. So, Soma, body, is a permeable identity within an environment, so that its capacity to act and be acted upon, that constitutes its very nature. It is the means of living in and experiencing the environment. This stands in contrast to this notion of a word or an essence that would put the soul as inward reality that uh, doesn't really need the body. And this is what I think Derrida is talking about here, that sin is the inversion of this relationship. No, our soul is our body. Our body is our soul. The two things cannot be separated from one another. And so the dualism and difference that constitutes language, it must be maintained and covered over, or the lie at the heart of human knowledge will become apparent. This is the, the postmodern project thing. In Lacanian language, there must be a misapprehension, a, a, a kind of miscomprehension, in which 
we would misrecognize the body. We would misrecognize the self. Another way of putting this is that in this fallen knowledge that we are all subject to, it is dependent on a kind of notion that we're going to obtain, and there's a, you know, what Derrida referred to as a continual deferral of the sign, a turning away, and a continual grasping of the empty sign that would constitute itself uh, in a kind of godlike sense. And of course, the problem here in Paul's explanation is that the law functions to bring out the fallen reality of the self. The law is not death-dealing because of an inferior status as written. That's not the problem of the law. The letter that kills is not simply the grammar of the written word, but that language, that law, the letter of the law, exposes the inward condition of man apart from God. It exposes what man would do with the letter. I think this is what Derrida and Paul are both getting at. The law is the law of the law of the inward self without remainder. So this is the, the circular sense in which the, the law exposes its own inadequacy. Uh, Paul says, even the Gentiles who do not have a written law are subject to the same condition that the law describes. And so what the Torah does is expose the law of sin and death. And in this way, Torah should not be translated law, but according to Rekur, it should be translated teaching or instruction. It is an exposure of the enslavement that exists as part of sin. Derrida's reading is an insight that is there into the Old Testament. Paul equates being enslaved to being enslaved by the law. But of course, the law that enslaves is this thing that is the law of sin and death. It is what uh, an orientation to the law, an orientation to the symbolic order that Paul describes as the futility of trying to escape the system. This is the irony again, that we would escape language through language. We would find life in the law, but in a way we would do away with the law. And so it's the system that we are all subject to. Law keepers, lawbreakers, this is Paul's description that it's those, both those who are pharisaical in regard to the law and those who would transgress the law. Both are subject to a more fundamental desire that the law traces and which is, arises in conjunction with the law. The, the law exposes its own inadequacy. You know, this is the first command that we're not to make idols. And this is, I really think, what it seems to be the primary human enterprise. Don't misappropriate God's name. That's the thing that we are most likely to do. And so what are the parameters and purpose of the human enterprise? In commands four and five, we're to honor. And the ultimate dishonor is of murder. The system of idolatry leads to a misappropriation of God's name. That's interconnected with murder. The commands are following the fall of man. God's displaced. There's a misappropriation. There is a turn then to violence and murder in the unfolding of Genesis. Leave your neighbor's stuff alone. Don't desire, you know, think here of uh, 
6 and 10. I'm just going through the Ten Commandments. Don't desire what your neighbor has. This is Gerardian. Don't do him in through the law. That why did Cain kill Abel? Why did Joseph's brothers, why would they do away with him? Cain would appropriate the life of Abel. We would appropriate the stuff of others. We would appropriate this to establish the self. And so Paul says the Jew who boasts about his relationship to the law ends up erasing the mark of the law, circumcision. That is, he's as if uncircumcised, because the mark was a mark of the self undone. That is, what is circumcision? It is a picture in which one recognizes as Abraham. You know, this is the whole point of circumcision. It points back to Abraham's relationship to God, relying upon God and not upon himself to be the giver of life and to turn to the law as the giver of life in, instead of God or to imagine that the mark of circumcision is itself, the law itself contains life. That's to undo the whole point of the law. So this is the, the circular sense in which the, the law exposes its own inadequacy. And so circumcision in Paul's description in Galatians, it's just castration cut short. It is a mark in the flesh that points to God's power and man's powerlessness. To boast in the law is to undo the mark, the very point of the law. That is the sign of circumcision points to God, it does not contain the signified within itself. And so what the Jews would do with circumcision is what all people would do with the law. To erase the mark contrasted with the indelible mark of the Spirit, the Jew, Paul says, has been entrusted with the very words of God. But what these words proclaim, the righteous Jew would disclaim. This is Romans 3.23. The fallen understanding Paul links to turning away from God, and he you know, equates this to the throat, the tongue, the lip, the mouth. It gives rise, he's describing the linguistic problem, the wrong orientation to language, the lie that gives rise to a violent defiance of God, that their feet are quick to shed blood. And so the knowledge system, the inward discourse of man, involving all of his speech organs, both inward and outward, are infected. And this gives rise to the lifestyle of violence, to a living death that will not allow for peace. The law takes on its meaning because it's broken. There would be no law, the law of sin and death, if there were not an original transgression. And so the origin that needs to be recognized, the law does not heal and was not meant to heal man's speech problem. It is only meant to interrupt the human discourse, that every mouth may be silenced. This silencing, this is Paul quoting the Old Testament, this silencing and the realization of being accountable to God are simultaneous. And so fallen language, the empty sign system, functions to hold this accountability at bay. The language problem, the lie, functions in an active present tense mode that drowns out, covers, and, and hides. It is the cover. The law traces the language problem, the human discourse. Paul says, through the law, we become conscious of sin. That's its purpose. Sin consciousness and law are synonymous. So that to miss the former is to miss the latter. The written letter brings home the death that we have all imbibed because it exposes the empty language, that knowledge of good and evil that deconstructs us. 
and needs deconstructing. And so Derrida is very much uh, one who works within a kind of Old Testament frame. The unconscious, in a Lacanian sense, is structured like a, a language. The unconscious is structured like a lie, a lie that we tell ourselves, thus creating an unconscious, a true self, you know, in air quotes, that is not there. The phantom of the immortal soul, or of a variety of names attached, you know, to the essential self is exposed by the, the silencing of the law because the dialogue of sin made up of the essence of the fallen self is brought to silence. And so the sin dialogue, structured as it is by the grammar, the letter, is the law. It follows the law and is produced by the law of sin and death. So Paul can say the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies. The law, the grammar, is prior to desire and explains the structure of desire because of what we would do with the law. So to recognize the work of the law is to come face to face with ourselves in the mirror of the law. The written law mirrors the law at work in us precisely because it is written. It is a grammar, a structure. And so mankind, represented by the Jew, would take the grammar, the letter, into his own hands and there it turns into the law of sin and death. And it is the same law, the same knowledge. But in one case, it is joined to a knowledge of God. And in the other, it is used to oppose God. That is, a right use and a wrong use of the law. And so the grammar taken as a possession of the self, a means of possessing the self, gaining internal life, undoes the self. Jesus says, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. Well, these are the scriptures that testify about me. They imagine themselves as possessors of the word of God, but they possess nothing if they don't understand that Jesus is the supplement in Derridian terms, that here is the, the one toward whom the words of scripture point. The embodied word that is Jesus exposes their opposition to the word. And so they're engaged in a kind of Babel project. Derrida also, by the way, gives us a nice reading of the, the Tower of Babel, of making a name for themselves. The human dialectic, fallen language, drowns out the word of God in a prideful self-proclamation. And so the problem is not a metaphysical dualism, but it is a linguistic dualism conceived as a metaphysical dualism. And this is the lie behind the modern philosophical project, the modern human project, but the universal human project. The Jews' proximity to the word, you know, as with Paul in Romans 7, it only aggravates, it exposes, but it does not relieve the dualistic structure of the law of sin and death. The dualism of mind and body is a product of the dualism of good and evil at work, the knowledge of good and evil at work in all people. And Paul describes it as a slavery to a law that escapes understanding, that is, it obscures understanding. So the law is a law of difference, whether it be the law of sin and death or the Jewish law. The Jewish law exposes the condition of fused difference. You know, when I try to do good, evil's right there with me. It is this difference and alienation of self from the other 
that Paul pictures as overcoming Christ. And so the fall is into identity through difference or alienation, imagining that the um, the dualism of language in some way delivers the object. The resulting dualism is not metaphysical, but an attempt to establish, Paul says, their own righteousness. That is, it imagines it's metaphysical. It imagines self-righteousness or pride. Self-righteousness or pride pits the absolute self-assurance of self-presence against the promise, the Word of God. I've, I've given primarily a kind of negative picture of this, equating the problem of language, but to continue this understanding, we need to also carry it over, I think, into the Barkian project to understand that what we have in theology is not a positive notion of God, not presence. Certainly, I think that a wrong understanding of the Eucharist, you know, that the presence misunderstood gets at the, the problem in a positive theology that imagines that we can grasp God. So uh, that we need to take this negative, well, I think in Derrida, which is primarily a negative reading, but I do think we need to carry this on over into a reading of theology that will always in, involve avoiding making language a mechanical presentation of the object. Bart is a, is a fine example of someone who gives a theological representation of, of the way that we should approach our understanding of who Christ is as the Word and what we should not do with that word. But I'll leave it now. Understanding, I think, of the significance of, of Jacques Derrida. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.